It's time for Building the Game, the game. Building the game. with Jason and friends at the end of the episode, that's when it technically ends. Hello and welcome to Building the Game, a documentary podcast. Today is Monday, February 5th, and you're listening to episode 610. And joining me again, as promised, is Jack Rosetree. Hello, Jack Rosetree. Hello. And the last time you were on, Jack, uh, we said, well, you suggested, I don't know, somehow it came up. We thought, let's have some people on and let's go through your game design self-diagnostic uh, that we talked about from your website. Mm-hmm. And guess what? We, we, we actually did that. Believe it or not, against all odds, despite our best efforts, we're back recording that. And we have two very special guests, two people who I enjoy as well from our Discord. And those two people are Robbie Bergstrom and Steve Casciola. Hello, y'all. Hello. Hey, Jason. Everybody. So it's uh, it's good to have you both here. We uh, we basically went back to the Discord and just put the call out and said, hey, anybody who's newer to the design world who would be interested in going through the self-diagnostic to kind of show how it works, uh, which this is just a free tool Jack has on their website uh, for people to check out. And um, yeah, and you both were like, hey, I'll do it. And we're like, yes, let's have two people then because uh, the more the merrier. I mean, honestly, if it had been three or four, no, not the more the merrier, but two. Yeah, for sure. Great idea. We would have gone with a battle royale. (laughs) Why Why not embarrass myself? <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Listen, I embarrass myself every single week. Uh, and also, thanks to whatever listener it was that pointed out that I say listen, because now I realize that I say that a lot. <laughs> and I hear it every time I say it now. Y'all are jerks. Um, so anyways, yeah, here we are. How, uh, how's everyone? Well, how, Robbie, uh, Robbie and uh, Steve, how y'all been doing? You haven't been on in a bit, in a minute. Or so, as they say, Steve, this is, this is your first time on, right? So you better let's leave yeah, us off here. It's, it's been a, quite the minute. This is, this is my first, I mean, I've been on some of the, the compilation episodes when we did the, the discord Tuesday, uh, right, meetup right, one. Right. And... So you've technically been here before, just not technically. Yes. Yep. Not with this fancy program though. Right. Right. Yeah. No, this is, uh, this is the way we do it now with Zencaster, which, uh, I pay to use, but we'll tell people you should also pay to use it. Cause it's, it's, it's pretty great. It works real well. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doing really well. I mean, enjoying uh, enjoying the start of the new year so far. Uh, as I was saying in the, the Tuesday meetup, we just took a, a weekend trip up to Vermont, which I would highly recommend, even if you're not in the New England area. It's Vermont is beautiful in the winter. Don't mind the cold. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I've only been through Vermont when I drove through it one time, but it's always seemed like a nice, like everybody always wants to like, go to Vermont in TV shows when they want to have like a nice weekend. So I'm glad to hear somebody actually did that in real life. And that's not just a hoax. You know, oh, yeah. TV shows are like, Oh, we're going to Vermont. And like, you're not. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Highly recommend. Awesome. How about you, Robbie? How are things going? Uh, it's, it's, I'm getting to play a lot of games. Um, meeting up with friends every January on uh, MLK weekend, we go up to deep Creek, Maryland, and usually it's like I, you know, I pack a ton of games, but, you know, I can get a, one or two out a few. But this time it was just like people are just like, I guess they've gotten used to me doing it. And they're just like, where are the games? And I must have played like 14 different games just all weekend long, small ones, not real big ones, but a lot, just a lot of quick, you know, really great ones. 
And then I, again, met with uh, some friends. Uh, I got this group of six guys, and um, we never really used to play games together, but it seems like we're playing a lot more now. They're coming down to visit. They're about two and two and a half hours away. I'm going up there. And I think it it's kind of cool because um, I think we're doing it largely because of the loss of one of our friends, and we're just a lot of getting together and just uh, enjoying each other's company and playing games, and, and it's just a really great time and i owe a lot of thanks we all owe a lot of thanks to our significant others and stuff to allow us to do that and uh yeah it's been a lot of fun i'm glad you get to do that that's good yep. i mean it's one of the one of the great things about games is bringing people together like that i mean that's Super a big part of how i got into it myself yeah that is a good point jack how about you how you been doing oh uh, good keeping pretty busy um uh, there's just a lot of individual projects all going on at once and uh, a lot of things all kind of landed on the same week, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get back to like real hardcore game design uh, next week uh, and, and fleshing out a few, few games that I've been sitting on hiatus for a while. Very cool. Very cool. I don't know that I've ever done hardcore game design. I feel like I'm missing out. I feel like I'm probably a slacker and should be doing hardcore game design, but I'm not. Is hardcore game design like recently? I've been writing rules while I'm watching TV. That's that's pretty hard, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like when you're listening to music while watching TV at the same time. <laughs> you listen to death metal. You have Fast and the Furious going on. Uh... <laughs> Helps if you're playing something on your phone at the same time. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I, the only thing I've ever done watching TV with games is cutting out prototype pieces sure oh, yeah. or sleeving cards sleeving cards is my nemesis i am so tired of sleeving cards all the time um that is a that is not fun but i haven't actually done it in quite a long time now that i've been working on smaller games sleeving cards is like 18 cards done like it's amazing <laughs> like you know cutting it out takes no time yeah. it's two sheets to cut out it's pretty great all right so uh Consider that, gentlemen. Yeah. Y'all consider I'm, that. Everyone consider that. I'm sitting on sixty and that's that's plenty. Sixty? Yeah, that's that's not I've like I most of my games are like seventy two max. I've done a couple ninety card games and those are not fun to cut out. I also cut out hex cards one time and was like, I will never do this again. They were they didn't even have to like line up. Oh, wow. They're just for opposite is opposite, so they just have to have the words on the side. So it was really easy to do. And there was like 32 of them to cut out. But but I'll tell you what, like I was really, really, really whiny about it. Like big time. Yeah, it's the truth. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pop into this topic here because uh, I have no idea how long the topic's going to take. It could be quick. <laughs> it could be not quick. Um, we're going to find out, though. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Robbie. It's like, what is this? Is my microwave going off? What's happening? 30 seconds to launch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, so Jack, uh, I'm going to kind of let you take over here, um, because, um, this is your thing and you know how it works better. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm going to listen in and, uh, maybe have some thoughts, but. We'll see. I just am excited to see how this works so that I can then take it and use it on my games. And yeah, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so so just to kind of explain the the broad scope of this, uh, it's called the Game Design Self-Diagnostic. And it's kind of like a check engine light for your game. Um, it's, it's not going to solve all of your problems, and it's certainly not going to um, fix your game for you, but it'll... It'll highlight a couple areas that are uh, perpetual areas of um, uh, that need attention. Um, some of them are really, really simple. Um, most of them are yes or no questions, except for the last one. And we're just going to kind of run through them. Uh, and uh, Steve and Rob have some games they've been working on that they're going to kind of use for this uh, diagnostic. And uh, yeah, it's 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 something that I do a lot of playtesting, uh, almost on a weekly basis, and sometimes uh, you know almost on a daily basis. And it's things that come up quite a lot that I think are worth kind of keeping in mind. And you know, if you're like me, sometimes you're just going to leave that check engine light on, and you're going to ignore it, and that is okay. Um, sometimes that's just what you need to do to get to work every day. Um, but we're going to run through these things and we're going to decide whether or not these are the check engine lights that we need to deal with. Sounds good. All right. Um, Love it. So, so before we, before we start, Steve, Rob, why don't you two just give us like the quick, the quickest version elevator pitch of the games that you're kind of bringing to this discussion? Sure, I can go first. Um, so, uh, and Jack's actually played this game, um, so that that's helpful. And actually, um, I know Jason has seen an earlier version of it as well. So, uh, my game, which is uh, the first one that I got to prototype, uh, is in is probably more complicated than it needed to be because that's how it works. Is uh, called Astral Expeditions. It's uh, uh, you're taking the role of one of the the first starship crews to explore uh, an uncharted galaxy. So it's a kind of a combination. Uh, map generation, you're going around uh, uncovering tiles, uh, uh, and the, the victory conditions are kind of a combination of both set collections, so you're going out trying to discover things uh, and bring information of that back to your home world, uh, but there's also a little bit of an area control aspect to it where you're, uh, if, if you found the coolest thing from this area, you you get points for it for at the end of the game. So think think about like the first half of a betrayal game where you're going out and exploring and things are kind of popping up, but then uh, uh, also kind of in a Star Trek-y universe. My primary game, and you've probably heard me talking about it because I've been working on it since 2020, um, is a heavily thematic city builder, but at the end of the day, it's essentially a set collection with a stacking component, um, and you build a centrally in the center of the table city that you all build together. Um, and that's, well, that's the super short pitch. Cool. All right. So uh, question one, uh, does, does the game have a player reference for each player? It did. <laughs> <laughs> so I cut it cause I, cause I cut everything that was on the play raid and mm -hmm. I'm holding on to that for a uh, future module. Um, there might be some small player aid, but, uh, trying to get it down to, uh, something so simple that it shouldn't need one. But yes, there, there will be a small, probably on the, on the player board, everyone gets mm -hmm. down at the bottom, there'll be little bulleted points and, uh, important things to remember and such. And I think for me, I actually probably went in the opposite direction here, which is I, I needed a player board for exactly one 
thing to track. Uh, and then so I just turn the entire player board into a player aid. So there is a player aid that each player has, but at the same time, there's probably way too much information on that, and it could it could definitely be simplified down. Well, yeah, and and what I'll what I'll throw out there is there's kind of like this this um this dynamic, which is the simpler your game is, the less excuse you have not to have a player aid. <laughs> and the more complicated your game is, the less excuse you have not to have a player aid. So there's there's no version of your game that shouldn't have some kind of player aid. I uh, speaking of kind of a, a simple game, and then I, I, just a player aid I came across mm-hmm. recently that I was found it pretty inspiring and uh, was the one for a Monopoly deal. I mean, it, on one of the reference cards, if you look at both sides of that card, you know how to play the game. Granted, it's a simple game, but it's just so well organized um, that I kind of jumped off and started modeling my own mm-hmm. off of that structure. But that's just a good example to look at. But of course there's thousands to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Now in my mind, player eight is, is a, like, this is what you do on your turn. This is the turn sequence as well as maybe some references to, to keywords and symbols. Is there anything else besides that, that you think are useful to include in a typical player aid? Um, if, if there's space for a key, certainly, but um having a player aid as early as possible in your design also kind of forces you to distill your core loop to your players. Even if there's a bunch of like weird offshoot stuff, just the ability to say like on your turn, this is what you do one, two, three. And especially like within the scope of play testing, you'll find that players can answer their own questions much more quickly and get to the part of the, the game that might actually be more of a problem than just do they have a player aid and can they understand it? Got it. Yep, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What do you got, Jason? Oh, I didn't bring a game to check this week. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that I always have stuff to talk about. So, and the only game I'm working on right now does not have a player aid because, um, because the the whole game is 18 cards and it's in a teeny tiny box. And I guess there could be like, I guess the the whole player aid is the rules, which are so simple and easy to follow that mm-hmm. it's that's the player aid you just look at that so yeah, yeah absolutely all right so we'll we'll go to question two uh do repeated phrases appear identically yes i i just going through my own rules right now i noticed i was referring to a player board and a player card so i chose one or the other um yeah and i'm looking for that type of consistency for sure mm-hmm yeah, I can I can almost guarantee that mine have issues with this, um, largely because, uh, especially at the phase that I'm at, which I would say is kind of in the middle, like things are still changing so significantly that something that was the case for a week ago is not true anymore, and you know certain cards or, or mechanics are, are dropped or added. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a good check though that I should add to my uh, my review especially because most of the time the rules themselves are not being presented to play testers it's more for my own reference as I'm going through and, and explaining the, during the teach how things go and, and but even that the consistent language would probably be helpful mm-hmm. yeah and and the thing that I throw out there is is one it's very easy to like do a find uh, search uh, in your document so if you have draw a card, you can just search draw and everywhere that the word draw shows up, try and make that consistent. Um, and the earlier that you start to build your rules document, actually, I, I argue the better because as you change things, like if your player mat becomes a player card, you can very quickly kind of go through your rules and find where 
that actually means something different for your game. I want to um, point out that I learned this the hard way <laughs> more than once. So yeah, the, when I saw this on there, I was like, oh gosh, yes. Like I was called out so many times for that. And that's how I got in the habit of always naming every deck of cards, every type of, everything has a specific name that I can reference so mm -hmm. that it can always be the exact same way. Yeah, if you have more than one deck, every deck should have its own name. And my names are always redundant. Like, several of my games have the same names for decks, you know, but that's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I, I came across this in the last version because I had two different types of crew members. I had a, a basic and advanced crew, and for most of the game, they're shuffled together, but during the setup, they needed to be separate, and that became very confusing <laughs> and is now not a part of the game anymore. <laughs> Are we? Are you going to ask about naming things? Because um, as far as like terminology, and I guess my question is, how do you feel about naming things when there's when there's a more common or simple term available? Uh, should you go with that? And I'll give you an example. I have a drafting component, and you know, typically in a game with drafting, you're going to be taking things from the market. Mm -hmm. um, but this is. In the real city, there was a settlement outside of the city where people were waiting to get in. And so I'd like you to draft people from the settlement. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, so so points for not jumping ahead, but literally the next question uh, kind of relates to this. And that's, are players mis misnaming mechanics, components, or concepts in your game? And that's something that definitely kind of relates to overall playtesting. Uh, I'm a big fan of naming your zones, giving them thematic names. Um, I don't necessarily agree with like calling your like just a flat discard your graveyard um, unless players have really been given a reason to to kind of uh, digest that. Um, but certainly on a board, especially like if you have a little square that has the word graveyard on it, it's very easy for players to point at that and say. That, that card goes to that place. Um, but that's honestly, like, that's a very quick check, which is when you're playtesting, if your players can remember and use those terms, then you're usually in pretty good shape. If they struggle to remember those terms, um, you know, and, and this is something I see with every game that has something, some name for currency and some name for victory points that is not... <laughs> coins and victory points or dollars and victory points you know mm -hmm. um or games that have multiple types where like it's like uh this is prestige but players are calling it reputation and honor and just calling it victory points mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's something that is uh testable um and i'm generally in favor of thematic language but you definitely want it to be like reinforced within the scope of your game um and if players aren't aren't digesting that, then it's definitely worth a look and, and maybe you just go with the regular uh, nomenclature. That's like, that's something for me that I always found tough in games. And it's like, Oh, this is my fantasy game. And the coins are Beeble bobbles. Like, <laughs> like just go with like, if it's fantasy, call it gold or money. If it's, if it's future, call it credits or call it money. Like, Lean on something people know, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I guess. Know. I guess as a counterpoint, if the theme is so strong, and I'll give an example, um, Dune Imperium. I mean, if you know Dune, the money is Solari, 
Um, I mean, I but, guess you can get away with it in that regard, but but that's the but the argument for that is the same though, right? It's called Solari because that's literally what it's called in an IP world that everyone knows. Yeah, I, I'm talking about when I'm like I make up the world of Beeble Siebel and then Beeble Bobbles are your money and Weeble Wobbles are your people and like and then it all gets confusing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. There's enough space for lore like that, I think, in big games. But in a little game, I, I think it's just distracting and confusing. That's also just my opinion. Uh, and I forget things a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> I, By and, the way, and, uh, oh, sorry. I was just saying, Beeble Siebel is kickstarting in 2025. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought this was the way Jason was telling us he's working on a Dr. Seuss game at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, and honestly, like if I'm playing one of the dune games i call it cash i call it money i call it whatever and and there is a certain amount that you can have those those lore appropriate names uh but as long as it's able to fall back on if a player calls it money it's not going to disrupt the the, what's called the magic circle of the game which is is a concept that we don't need to get into but the idea that like if you want to call it credits and i just call it you know space bucks we're not disrupting each other's ability space to play the game. <laughs> I I rescind my comment. Call it space bucks. Yeah, if it's futuristic. <laughs> it's got to be space bucks. Yeah, and it's interesting too because for online prototyping, yeah, I, my game is in in screen top, which is, it's now very easy to just add labels to containers for mm-hmm. things, which would help mm-hmm. with that. But in real life, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have a board for every component that i have necessarily and so it might be a little bit harder to actually maintain that consistent or at least noticeable naming for a, a physical prototype or the actual game eventually mm-hmm. yeah cool. so and, and that's uh, like that's definitely a judgment call you know there, there's no right answer there necessarily because you know some people want that deep lore some people want a game that's going to make them read a 50 page document in order to figure out what the history of Beeble Boops is, um, uh, and 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 other games won't have that, and that's fine. Um, so a lot of that was related to clarity. Um, the next section is primarily focused on accessibility, and this is something that like I've I've argued with a few people about because um, people uh, in the playtesting spheres sometimes have a sense of like I don't need to make my game colorblind friendly because I'm just playtesting and uh, you know, a, a publisher will fix those problems. Um, and I, I've definitely seen playtests fall through because a colorblind individual happens to be one of the playtesters. Um, so a lot of this is just like, hey, this would be really nice. It's certainly helpful. And especially within the scope of playtesting, I know a lot of people that super appreciate these level, these accessibility things, even though it might take you a little bit of extra design time. Um, and so the first one is very simply, do all distinct components have at least two unique identifiers? Yeah. yeah and I think this is super interesting because even if it's not a, a colorblind or direct accessibility, I've found that people's minds just key in on different things sometimes, mm-hmm. like where somebody might see color first, others see symbols or textures or patterns. And so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something I've come to appreciate in the last couple of months. I always use a symbol and a color because I won't remember symbols, but I'll always remember color. So I figure, like, for colorblind... And I actually figured... That back when I started designing games, like, that wasn't something that, that we considered, I feel like. Like, that was mm. not, you know... 
and there was um <clears throat> there's a a playtester named Eric Handler. Uh, he's a he play. I mean, he's a game player and stuff as well. But like he he play tested one of my games, and he was like, "Oh, I'm having trouble reading this. It's I'm colorblind." And I was like, "Oh, like," and it was just like this, like, "Oh crap!" Right? Like that. That's a thing. Like, and then from then on, I started to focus more on that. And and I just think the distinct identifiers, Jack, I think is what you're saying here too. Is it's just as really nice to be able to look at two different things and say this is that right you know because mm-hmm. there's extra stuff but yeah for me it's always color color is what pops in my head so i will make a symbol and give it a color and that way it works for everyone yeah my building units are a 3d model printed out um so they are all identical um i'll have to think about i, I don't want to differentiate too much because i don't want to have to like create if i was able to pu- print it like mm-hmm. different dyes. Um, but the colors I heavily investigated and also ran through like one of those apps, one one in particular on my phone right now is that the CV simulator. Mm-hmm. And you can look at it and all the various, um, what is it? Uh, I can't, well, actually I can name them. Why don't they get Protonope and Deuteronope and Tritonope or Tritonope, whatever. Uh, and then com- you can compare, compare them all at once. Mm-hmm. And um, the colors I've come, I've come up with, looking at all those at the same time, I can, I can, I can differentiate uh, each one. So I'm hoping in that case um, that those colors work. As far as the cards, they are different colors, but they also have different suits and suits in mm-hmm. particular to the particular colors. But at the same time, I could maybe do something on the colors to another type of. Yeah. So the thing, but, yeah. the thing that I would push back on is that it's not strictly a color blindness uh, issue. Um, so, uh, some people's brains literally just work different. They're going to want something else to latch onto that is not just color. Um, there's also uh, there are people that have difficulty differentiating shades. Um, there's also, you know, just, uh, if you have a lot of the same unit in the same space, um, being able to identify different, different units based on something other than color really helps. Uh, for some people, it makes it way easier to count things as well. Um, and that's why I, I really push on the two unique identifiers, no matter what it is. Um, one of the first people that I would play to heavy games with, um, like 15 years ago when I really started playing heavy games was colorblind and the number of games with red and green meeples that we could not play simply because they could not identify the the difference between the two was very high but there were other games that seemingly were colorblind friendly that they still had trouble with um and so that's where like certainly there's financial considerations if it's going to be more expensive to print uh different varieties of things but i also think like if you're making a game that has three-dimensional pieces like i would want to spend money on something that has more variety and i think that would also increase your perceived value on top of it so i think there's reasons beyond just the accessibility that your your accessibility is more like a side benefit to making your game more exciting to look at on top of it yeah, the, I think the meeple color and the, the player colors is the thing that I was interested in and was wondering your take on that because it, it, for for my game, the, the discoveries are the main things and each of those have a symbol and a color that are mm-hmm. 
different and and so that's how you tell them apart and then the shape is more related to what it relates to so there's knowledge which is how you gain discoveries that's a certain symbol and then there's the discoveries themselves and then there's a, a dice and they're all circle shape and then a brain symbol yeah. um, but the but the player eight colors themselves are still pretty generic components you know they're cubes and discs that are a single color mm -hmm. so is, is that enough that you would want to Find I, I would still encourage yeah i would i would still encourage an extra dif differentiator and honestly like like especially if you're doing if you're doing live play testing and all you have access to is meeples then there's that that excuse of like it is more expensive and more time consuming to do the alternate stuff um but certainly in a in a digital tabletop it doesn't add that much time uh, at least in my experience when I've been messing with stuff to have, you know, just icons as the player, as the player uh, pieces. And I think that that also uh, lets you, it, it's, it's one of those holistic changes that helps you lean into your lore a little bit more because now I'm not just the green player. I'm the, the green flame demon hive player and somebody else is the the blue robots and and like i think that there's things that you can do where again the accessibility is a side benefit to already making your game more interesting i'm the people bops yeah. <laughs> i just want to let the i was gonna say i just want to let, let the listener know that there's a cat on jack's head right on their head yeah i i don't know how much the my mic is picking up the cat um, <laughs> it's not bad it's it's slightly past their bedtime, their uh, dinner time, their second dinner time. <laughs> There's a process. And, uh, so they're a hobbit. Right. <laughs> a hobbit cat. And I want to say, um, Rob, I feel your pain. You know, with Perfectly Parceled, we ran into the same issue where we've got these, um, these 3D shapes that you use. And all the 3D shapes are made from different colors that we hoped would be. You know, we, we looked and we tried to make sure they would be colorblind friendly. But currently, they only have one differentiator. Because we're 3D printing them, we're making some different models to try to adjust that. But um, but that's it's it's tough. Like you know, and and Steve, what you said too with meeples and stuff like that, it's difficult. But yes, I have seen more games of late go with slightly different shapes and things like that to try to make it a little more accessible. Um, and I think that's fun. Like, I do think it's fun when I'm like, oh, I can be this shape. I'm not, I don't have to be like the same thing. So yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if like in our case with a 3d model, um, you know, you're creating the, and I, from what I understand, you know, you pay a lot of money to get that one die if you're ever going to print a big run of it. And, um, but maybe you could have that die and there's something they could just throw in one one part that's interchangeable you know if, if it's you mm -hmm. know, got a symbol a diamond or a square and that could come you could have your one main die and then they could just alter it before they do the print run or something maybe something like that i, I bet they could work with you on that yeah. but. i also and, think that's gotten a lot cheaper over the years mm -hmm. for those changes yeah and and again if we're if we're talking about this like it's a check engine light this is something that like you have to look at your particular design and say is this worth me spending the time on is it not? And if you're doing like a single prototype, it it probably isn't worth doing four completely unique molds that are going to be like $30 a piece. It's probably better to get the same mold each time uh, and do something to modify that. Cool. 
All right. Uh, so next up, we've got, do all complex effects have easily accessible plain text descriptions? I think silence oh. says a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Steve. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Short answer. Um, yeah, I mean, this is definitely where the, the complexity of, of the game comes in right now and its immaturity. I, I think there's, you know, similar to the, the player reference or, or the, the mm -hmm. phrases, there's a lot of things that could definitely be more consistent across, um, you know, what the description of what these things really mean. And I, I tried to make it as... Uh, let's say lore independent as I could so that it was a little bit more familiar to a new player, but it, it could definitely still use work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's something where it doesn't even necessarily need to be a, a full play, full blown player reference, especially in the scope of play testing, but you'll find that you having a safety net for what your icons do and what your different abilities do. Like, like I've seen designers, <laughs> like be asked what does my card do and the designer looks at it and says i don't know <laughs> yep yeah my, you have the... to lie you have to lie <laughs> in that spot no, like, it's, oh, it's... No, this works this way and they're like but how does that work then I, you're like, I, oh, don't, no, I don't think yeah. you should ever lie to your players no no you, you do the what, what? do you, you yeah, want yeah what do you think it does what yeah, do you think it for does sure. <laughs> for sure for sure and then when the idea, when they say, whatever they say is great, you go, yes, that is, that is exactly yeah. what it is. Uh, yeah. For those of you looking for a dissenting opinion, there's a previous podcast in which somebody yes. suggests that you lie to your playtesters. <laughs> I wonder yes. who that was. <laughs> Certainly not on this call. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, I'm sure I know what you're, you're referencing, Jack, which is the, the item cards, which were the latest things that I added, were woefully... Uh, inconsistent in terms of terminology and how things worked uh, mostly because I didn't have a chance to scan those before I played them last but yeah I'm and, and that definitely shown through in the play test itself like the, there were more questions about what does this mean and what does this card do than most other things but to your example Jack as far as the card you're talking about just on that card probably in that instance Language. So, yeah, and that's, that's again, that especially now that we have a lot of tools that will automate building our cards for us, um, I've found that, especially within the scope of playtesting, and, and maybe this doesn't need to be in the final printed version, having those plain text descriptions directly on the card certainly helps. But if you can't do that or you don't want to do that and you want to test the viability of your symbols, that's totally fine. You should still have, like, a backup somewhere that's, like, here's exactly what this does and if it's accessible to the players that certainly helps because anytime the players can answer their own question in front of you that will tell you a lot more than you telling them what the answer is mm -hmm. um, because that that also starts to relate to unguided testing and, and blind play testing and whether your players can play the game without you and the more that you start to build those tools and see how your players interact with them the, the better you can get at that is really what it comes down to it also helps when you, as the designer, as you're making a game, look at a card and you yourself have for totally forgotten what it does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, do your rules contain gameplay examples? Yeah, I saw this one and thought it was super interesting because, so uh, full disclosure, my rules consist of a basically a bulleted list of, of things. It's not certainly not rules that somebody would want to read through right now, but it's more <laughs> a reference for myself on how the game is played. And and then for a couple of situations as I was making those, I did 
write down an example specifically because I felt like my rules weren't clear enough on their own, which is probably a whole nother issue. Um, but I, I thought this was interesting because I've seen rulebooks go both ways with this, um, and maybe it depends on the complexity of the game, how useful it is. Um, but there, I've seen ones where I found it was distracting, and I've seen ones where I was mm-hmm. clear. I basically could have just read the example as opposed to the rules itself. Yeah, and and what I will say is is your impulse to write an example as an alternate to your rules it does two things one is it gives you that reinforcement but also writing examples kind of forces you to explain your game mechanics in very real world terms and a lot of times that will help you make your rules even better yeah that's very true again this is this is very much a check engine light situation is this worth doing um Early on in playtesting, probably not. But for some players or, or some designers, it will really help them kind of formulate how they want their game to work. And if you start explaining how your game works and then you realize, like, that's not how cards work, then you have a decision to make. Do you make the, the example correct or do you make your rules correct? And that can help you kind of navigate your way through your design. Mine will have... More examples, sure. I mean, I'm I'm basically finally getting to a solid first draft. Um, I did see a picture of my game and and notice there's a great opportunity to help explain the rules about where you can build, and which is something that just a test over the weekend with some friends. They were expressing that like they don't really get it. You know, despite in my opinion, it's super simple, um, but. The so I was able to like highlight on the picture of the city, you know, with with symbols. You know, you can get here without spending a card. You can get to this symbol by discarding one card, and you can get to this symbol by discarding two cards. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I will have a lot more stuff like that eventually. But in this first run, yeah, for sure, just um, just the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I definitely fall on the side of uh, I've I've seen rule books that create disruptive uh examples that kind of they mix in a little too much or they give like i i don't think there is anything less useful than the here's an entire game example at the end of the rule book that takes up three pages um mm. that just it drives me Who absolutely to write that i feel like that person got paid by the word uh maybe um <laughs> But certainly, like, I think ultimately, if examples are done correctly, there's no such thing as a rule book that is not made better by having examples because players just are going to be more likely to be able to follow your game if you have an example as backup for the rest of the plain text. I wonder if, like, one thing I might do is if I'm getting four or five people to read through the rules real quick, have one of the questions be, leave the examples out, basically, and, mm-hmm. and have them read it and say, where do you wish there, there was an example? And if, you know, several of them say the same things, then, mm-hmm. then I clearly need an example there. Yeah, and, and that definitely, like, like helps you zero in on, on the spaces where those could be an issue. Um, and this, this goes back to something that, that I suggested on the last, uh, my last visit to Jason Town. Um, <laughs> uh, Beeble, Beeble, Weeble. The name of the podcast. Right. A really really good uh, thing (laughs) that you can try is sitting down, handing your rules to one person and saying, I want you to teach my game to the person standing next to you. And then I want that person to teach the game to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
they don't have to play the game, but just by going through that process, you'll you'll get that like telephone effect, and you'll be mm-hmm. like, why why are you discarding cards at that point? Mm-hmm. Why are like why do you have a hand of thirty two cards? And that'll help you figure out like where your real problem areas are. And and again, like 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 you suggested that can kind of narrow down where you want to spend your time on examples if you have to pick and choose where you're going to spend that time. Something, Jack, I'm surprised you did not include in here is, uh-huh. um, is do, do you have a picture example of something? So, yeah. I, so- I, for me, that has been like every rulebook gets one because it saves the heck mm-hmm. out of trouble for me. But I also don't write gameplay examples because – if there's anything I hate in rules, it's writing gameplay examples. But if there's anything I hate more in rules, it's reading gameplay examples. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm like the outlier with that, but like I will not read a gameplay example unless I'm so confused I can't figure it out, and then I will. I don't know why. I just I hate it. I want to I want to set things on fire. Show me a picture. But yeah, and, and, and I I do agree that like pictures certainly help um, with the game design diagnostic. Some some questions certainly like skirt the fence so to speak but this is not how to write a good rule book for your game um that'll that'll be another thing that i'll probably release at some point but this is more focused on the design side of things um your components Mm -hmm. the the tools that you give your players um honestly like if i tried to write a, a anything on how to make a good rule book it would be like a 300 page dissertation um mm. uh, i right. i do i i don't want people to think that they can not have pictures uh if 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 uh and and expect people to still understand things it doesn't matter how accurate your rule book is um picture examples are always going to help but this is more about the design side of things so and, that makes sense that makes i also sense. like ultimately i <laughs> I wanted to stick to 10 questions and there's certainly other things that, that anybody could say, like that could go in there and it, they're probably right. Um, this is just the stuff that I chose to kind of highlight and focus on. That's okay. cool. That's cool. I just wanted to ask cause yeah. Um, all right. So, so that was mostly accessibility related stuff and accessibility. I'm, I'm covering people's ability to play your game. Um, from a you know colorblindness standpoint, but also like just do they understand your game and are they able to access the tools that they need in order to solve their own problems? Um, I, I have um, as far as accessibility, I, I have the additional element of there's a lot of um, digital manipulation, mm-hmm. um, so I have to be really careful about that. I had some great input from Justin at um, PAX Unplugged and. Mm-hmm. So, and I have some ideas and solutions, but yeah, that's something I always have to keep in mind in, in that realm too. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So we'll jump to theme now. Uh, can the mechanics be explained within the context of the theme? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, in my case, I started with theme. And so every mechanic I've come up with mm-hmm. has been inspired by the theme. I'll just give an example. Um, in this city, it was basically a hand-built city where people were literally building on top of each other. Um, one example, a photograph I've seen is a staircase going to a ceiling where it used to go to the next floor, but then someone moved in 
above <laughs> and cap that sucker off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if I was saying, okay, why are you building up and then to the side and then on top of your opponents? And because thematically, this is what happened. So, yeah, I, I hope so. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think especially for me, too, it definitely mine, mine started with theme as well. And, and we're dictating a lot of the mechanics and it was more of a I think this theme would be cool. And these couple of mechanics um, were, were things that I think fit that and were interesting in terms of their combination and not necessarily something that I had seen a whole lot of, out of out there um, for better or for worse. But um, yeah, like there are certain things even after the initial design. Uh, so like, for example, the discoveries that you collect are, are ultimately one of the main points of your victory points, but that's also how you can get more crew. And thematically, the way that is, is you bring these discoveries back and instead of collecting them yourself, you're publishing them and putting them out there and using that to lure or, or entice crew members, new crew members to come join your ship because look at all the cool stuff that we've, we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I've definitely tried to work that into some of the, the terminology um, or at least mapping mechanically what I want to do with some sort of thematic reason for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that, like, one of my first questions is, and, and this is a question that will happen later, but um, if you have, like, a card limit and your players have to discard down, like, why does that card limit exist within the scope of your game? And, and a lot of games can have that card limit and not explain it, but anything that you can kind of explain within the context of your theme um, tends to make your game easier to teach to players. Yeah, theme, it's certainly when you tie something to the theme, I always feel like it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier to remember. If if the theme is understandable and well-known, right? Mm-hmm. Like the kind of the concept makes sense. It's not some theme that's like so far out that doesn't make sense to people. Because I think then it can be tricky, you know? Yeah. Because then it doesn't and... align in a way that makes sense to your average person. Yeah, and, and I also think that... Uh... If, if your thematic tie-in is really, really good, players will remember it and never forget it. Um, mm-hmm. there, was, there was a game that um, somebody was developing uh, that was like you, you were basically living by yourself and trying to collect things to make you feel better uh, while navigating, you know, having a job. It was kind of like the game of life. Um, and one of the things that you could collect to make you feel better was cats. You could you could adopt cats uh, from like a card row. And if at some point you had three cats, then whenever there were cats on the card row, you had to take cats. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a fantastic way of explaining what was ultimately just a like it, it was like a trigger mechanic of like, OK, you have three of this suit. Now you have to keep taking that suit. But by explaining it within the context of the game, um, I'm sitting here, you know, 15 years later explaining the way that game worked um, yep. in a way that I, I like my brain just latched onto it. And I think, you know, if you have really good uh, mechanics that involve your theme that are like almost like like nifty explanations, players will gravitate towards them pretty quickly. All right. Um does your theme draw from a particular culture, community, or history? It certainly does. Tell us about it. Well, I think I know where you're headed with this. Um, and that is, do you have cultural consultants? 
And I, uh, not only do I, but if if they weren't on board, if they weren't with it, if they didn't didn't approve of it, it just wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be it would kind of be great because like the whole this whole project is just exploring the theme and and what I can do with it and um, you know it so so the, I'm talking to people who lived in this city and to, to be specific yeah review real quick it's it's a Kowloon walled city based in Hong Kong it's literally an artifact of mm-hmm. British colonialism in that you know Britain after the opium wars made China lease them Hong Kong and and there was this one piece of land that China said, you don't own that because that's where our magistrate was. And there was a treaty a hundred years ago or something. And, and so your hands off, we're hands off. And now this, there's this six and a half acre lot in Hong Kong where no one has any jurisdiction or law. And so there was just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. It, it, and then the perception of it, if you if you research it and read some of the articles and stuff, always everyone leads with the fear of it. The it was a scary place. It was dark, and um, but then as you delve deeper and talk to people who live there and see books by like Fiona Hawthorne, who made a children's book about it, because the people she met there when she walked in uh, were wonderful. Um, but of course, there was a dark element too, and so I have to include that. I've, I've chosen to highlight mm-hmm. the underlying message is is, is one of, uh, uh, well, hope. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, and and that particular uh, circumstance is a very interesting one. It's it's one that I've looked into a little bit as well. Um, and and yeah, I, I, what I'm pointing towards and what I recommend within the scope of that question is number one, um, absolutely. Like if you're if you're utilizing any kind of history or culture that is not your own, you you should involve people that it is theirs. Um, but even if it is your own, you should still have it. Like everybody needs an editor. Uh, even editors, um, you should still have other people involved bringing perspective that may not be yours, uh, bringing perspective that may be more, uh, have more authority to them. Um, and in some cases, like it may not be a community history or culture that uh, needs that level of scrutiny, depending on what you're doing with your game. Um, I don't want to get into how you make that decision because I'm not the right person to have that discussion. But um being aware of what you are bringing to your game and how it is reflected within your game is a thing that everybody should pay attention to as they're putting their design together. Yeah. And I, I want to hear uh, what Steven has to say, but even, even when the theme is, is something you might not think needs mm-hmm. someone's eyes on it, like a space theme or something. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, definitely, ahead. you know, I, obviously I don't have as strong of a connection as, as your game does Robbie, but it's something that, it's it's definitely easy or I, I could see how it would be easy to fall into traps like I, I know one thing that I specifically a choice that I made was you know when we're talking about going out there and, and seeing these discoveries I very clearly and explicitly didn't want it to be that you were collecting or taking things back mm. with you you're collecting exactly. information you're cataloging you're not you know and, and mm. it's a, mechanically it doesn't change anything you're still getting tokens for things that you find but just I didn't want it to be a you're going out and and 
taking everybody's stuff from their their home worlds and bringing it back to you, which is you know a minor thing to do, but uh, it hopefully is a little bit more uh, conscious of, of of other themes and, mm-hmm. and cultures and things. Um, and and the other thing that I've I've thought about and probably haven't spent as much time on it is just you know I have the the concept of these events, which are these one-time things that can happen to you out in space, which draws heavily from you know sci-fi and and other uh, media and entertainment, but you know that the, that media and entertainment wasn't always the most culturally sensitive or conscious either. So uh, it, it's something I definitely want to make sure I get plenty of eyes on to make sure I'm not inadvertently pulling from from themes or cultures that I, I don't even realize um, are or you know shouldn't be repeated. Yeah, and and something I'll throw out there is uh, so you said that you know it, it makes no difference uh, whether within the scope of your game, you're going out and collecting knowledge or going out and collecting stuff. Maybe there's something that you should do there with your theme or your mechanics that does highlight that difference. Like maybe if I go out and I collect information on horticulture and I come back and I sell it, now everybody's horticulture knowledge is improved rather than just I'm giving this to some specific individual. and that's something where you can really start to fiddle with like, okay, what does it mean that we're collecting information? Like, how does that reflect differently in the mechanics that if I went out and collected like, you know, I don't know, a, a, a derelict ship and brought it back and sold it, like what what's different there? Uh, and I think I think there, there could be some fun things that you could do with that theme that might inform some of your further down the line design decisions. Yeah, that's I I hadn't thought about that, but that's super interesting, especially to make it a little bit more, um, uh, co- not collaborative, but make it so that the player interactions are a little bit mm-hmm. increased if what you're putting out there is also then usable by other players as well. Yeah, I'm still struggling because the Beeble Bops only exist in my head, <laughs> so it's really tough to get a second opinion on that. Um, uh, before you say that, you should Google Beeble Bops and make sure of that. <laughs> it's also very close to Beeble Brocks, which, you know, since we're talking about <laughs> space things, <laughs> it keeps throwing me off. That's uh, a hitchhiker's reference for those of you who are not familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Nope, uh, no, Beeble Bops a thing. Cancel the Kickstarter. Dang it. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have two questions left, and it's it's mostly focused on design. Um, do any of your rules or mechanics exist solely for balance? Yeah, th- this is an interesting one. So there was there was one specifically that I added mainly for I don't know if you consider it balance, but it's definitely for just to make the gameplay better. Which is when you're doing map generation, you know, if you're doing a tile placement game, the the rules kind of give you certain advantages to like how you want to place it and and can guide it but since this was pure random map generation i was trying to figure out how do you just prevent somebody from going off into space and and going eight tiles out and running you know running out of tiles or or having a weirdly shaped board which funnily enough jack actually did in in their playthrough of my game anyway shocking um um, and and it kind of worked the way that i wanted to but i i introduced a mechanic to try to limit the effectiveness that you your crew had after you move a certain number of spaces so basically it required you to go home and rest after a little while so that it forced players into a more central area um so i I think that's the the main version of it i think it it works 
fairly well, but there's definitely some balance things with it that I still need to work out um, to make sure that it's it's not being too obtrusive and it's it's uh, doing what I want it to. My answer is no, but uh, talk to me again when I've playtested this rule set a hundred times or so. I <laughs> the, the nature of the map is that it's symmetrical in the on the y-axis but not symmetrical on the x and there's got to be some a lot of inherent um differences in that and advantages to playing on on one side of the map or the other uh that don't immediately jump out to me but i'm sure they will but so far and so in the playtest, it's um i've had people win on both sides of the map and all over it so we'll see i thought for sure you were going to say Talk to me when the game is actually kind of balanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, and actually now, now that you're talking about it, I remember specifically, Jack, a comment you gave me in the feedback as well, which was uh, in the events that you can do, there's the chance that you could succeed at effectively nothing. And my answer to that terminally was, oh, well, as a consolation prize, you get an item card. But number one, that wasn't very clear. And number two, Jack pointed out that, you know, that's that's one of these band-aid situations that kind of even though it was meant to make it so that it wasn't didn't feel like a waste it, it didn't feel really good either um and so I've, I've actually since been working on ways to make it so that it's a lot easier to get that to the point where it's almost impossible to completely fail at an event i like the idea of succeeding at nothing that sounds great i want to revise <laughs> my definition of success because that <laughs> I think I can. I think I can do this. I You're think. like I'm going to shoot the moon. I'm going to succeed at nothing. I, Jack, this is one of my favorite questions in here, just because it's so, like, annoying. Like, really. Like, I don't know a better way to say it. Like, like, how dare you be like? Do you have anything in there just so that it's balanced? And like, I mean, probably. That's why I put it there. You know, but like I, I, I like this. I, I like the idea that like, don't just throw something in to make it balanced. You know, make it, make it count, make it matter that it's there, and and give it a reason thematically or whatever to be there, not just as a band aid. And I, I really, really dig that. Um, and it makes me think back to other games and be like, did I, did I do that with you know, like, with my game Build a Fire? I know that's not the case because there's so few rules and there's no catch up or balance. Um, and in that game, you could completely lose. Um, you could succeed at nothing. Uh, and that could just be uh, because your group sucked. And that's a bummer for you. Uh, next time play with a different group. <laughs> How about um, I do have a rule so it doesn't break, but I guess that's, that's not, that's not the same thing. Is it? I mean, it could be, it's uh, like, could you explain the rule real quick? I mean, inherently, when you're stacking things on top of each other and uh, and competing with people in the same space, someone might get completely stacked on top of um, and blocked to the point where they can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, fortunately, it doesn't happen very much at all. But uh, basically, you have a hand of cards that you're working on trying to place in the city, um, build locations that coordinate with the cards and, and you score the points, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in order to build, to, in order to basically ignore the build rules where you can build, you can discard two cards or, or actually to, if you discard three, you could build anywhere you want. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of your get out of jail uh, move. I mean, I, 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 
the way the way you would describe it to me, I, I think, um, you know, you're spending extra resources to build mm -hmm. outside the lines, you know, color outside the lines. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, but, you know, if you start to feel like it is a Band-Aid um, or, or a guardrail, depending on, you know, what you prefer, uh, there's there's kind of two ways to deal with it. The one is to try and obliterate it and, and rework your mechanics such that it cannot, it that the circumstances that require it to exist cannot happen. Um, and then the other way is to look for a way to turn it into its own its own mechanic. Mm -hmm. You know, it, like if I get myself boxed in, or if another player boxes me in maybe I get a free placement anywhere without spending those bonus resources. And now I play for it. Now, now maybe I want to put myself in a place that I think another player has to build over or will build over because I want that free extra placement or that broader placement, um, you know, or, or maybe, uh, you know, if you box in another player, uh, you get the cards that they discard to get out of that. You know, oh, it, it, they're paying you to, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a great point. I'm gonna keep note that. Um, specifically in my case, you know, you're, and talking actually, to the cultural consultant and what what they wanted to see in it. I mean, this is a community, so, um, you're competing, but you're also working together to build this yeah. city, and so yeah, maybe if you if you're the person that actually just cut somebody off, there should be like a negative component to that, like um response to that so and you know just debating I, i'm having to just go down to this is just a competitive game get the furthest along the victory track you know mm -hmm. yeah. um and it's and it's you know it's difficult for me to even call it a victory because you know no one no one got well some people got rich but it wasn't about sort of winning it was about surviving when this place had to be torn down but not to digress too much but but yeah those those are those are great points and that's a great idea I think I can throw out a concrete example from the past, a game that I worked on that was signed but never published. Um, and there was a system in it where you were betting and you had to pay like an ante, like a poker ante every round. Um, and so we we made it like in a way like where you could you could lose. You could get knocked out of the game. You could get eliminated because you ran out of money and we didn't like that. And finally, we just gave you exactly enough money to make that impossible to happen. Like that was our fix. We gave you enough money so that you could be as stupid as possible and just bad at the game as possible and still play the whole game. You would lose. You would never stand a chance of winning, but you wouldn't get eliminated from the game. Mm -hmm. um, and that fix actually worked really well because it wasn't a bandaid, right? I mean, it was just, we're just going to start everyone with enough money so that no one gets eliminated. But also you're, we're not making it so you win. We're just making it so you get to play to the end mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, enjoy the game. Uh, if that game was enjoyable, I've not sold that it was. Hence the fact <laughs> it was never actually manufactured or you know, published. So, yeah. Anyways, though, that was a solution that worked really well for us. And we enjoyed that. Because we started off with, well, if you run out of money, then you get some money to keep playing. We're like, well, that's stupid. Then I might want to actually run out of money to try and get more money. You know, and so that was a great instance where the Band-Aid was just going to cause more problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes, like, especially, like, as you're developing your game, it's okay to have Band-Aids. It's okay to, like, slap, you know, some duct tape and some super glue on it just to hold it together while you get through your core loop testing. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a, it's a really good thing to kind of have that eye 
and and have it in your back the back of your head of like i've got this band-aid what can i do with it do i draw flowers on it or do i rip it off um and i would say you should almost always do one of those two just leaving the band-aid there is generally not the right decision in the long run cool all right uh and then our last question and this is the this is the only one that's kind of like like an open-ended it's not a yes or no question and it's kind of just a like keep this in your mind as you're working on your design um where could mechanics or components overlap more in your game well you just highlighted one in, in that like um i hadn't even really thought about cards being moved between players once they've acquired them um i do have an element where you know that essentially when you're building you're, you're populating the building unit with the people you've collected and um if you aren't able to get them into the city, they kind of get displaced off your board and then they become available to everyone else to take from you to, to build. Um, but yeah, you know, I hadn't applied that similar thinking to the cards yet. And I'm, I may. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, so to answer your question, yeah, I do have some of the elements, but they, I think I could think about it some more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have anything directly related to this, although I, I probably should because I do enjoy that sort of thing where it, it, there's just a more like integrated feel to everything when you when you have those and and I mean like it could be as simple as as cards that have multiple uses that you can give more decisions for or um, something that you can use in different phases of the game. Um, but yeah, I, I I like this one is like you said, all the other questions are pretty easy to answer. This one definitely requires a lot more thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this is an area where you can look at the components you have in your game. You can look at, for instance, like if you have money and you have energy, you know, do those need to be two separate things? Um, and, you know, for some games, absolutely 100%. But for other games, if you have a choice to spend on one thing or another thing, those opportunity costs are where you start to really build the kind of like interesting decision-making for your players. Um, and the, 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 the way I describe it for a lot of people is, you know, imagine your game is a Venn diagram and each of your major mechanics is a circle. What could you put between the two mechanics in, in that center zone? Yeah. So, my the discovery and crew member one that I mentioned earlier is actually an interesting one because I've I've gotten varying uh, feedback on that in terms of people you know they're they're the main victory points but they're also used to recruit new crew members and some people like that idea about the decision about well do I give up these points to uh, now to get a, a a better sort of engine um, with your crew and others felt like it felt bad to be basically giving up victory points to do something that they thought should be able to be done you know, just as a part of a core mechanic of the game, they didn't like the feel of that trade-off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, my brain just went off on a total digression. I, I was thinking, um, I was testing the game with friends and um, they are having trouble. Well, they weren't willing to like listen to the rules. And the, the thought was don't test with friends because especially if they've known you like since uh, kindergarten in some instances, because they're just, you know, they're perfectly prone to like dismiss you. <laughs> you should, it's better to test with strangers because at least they'll listen to you, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, 
yeah so. to to go back to steve's point um uh there are a few games that you know money is your score at the end of the game um i think scythe is a very popular one that does that like every every dollar you have is you know in order to spend it you are spending you know points in the long term and there's a definite strategy in that game of just make a ton of money and you know out out finance everybody else at the table and i do think that's that's a very interesting you know opportunity uh within the scope of the game um and it does kind of force you to say like if i'm going to spend this three the three i don't remember what they're called in sight these three dollars people bops uh space bucks if i'm going to spend these three space bucks am i going to get more out of it in the long run and uh you know, the the more that your game can kind of force the player to make those kinds of decisions without perfect information, uh, I think the the more interesting stuff you'll have going on, and the more rewarding it'll be when they feel like they've made the right decision. That makes sense. We did it, y'all. We made it through the whole thing. We did. So, um, so Steve and uh, Steve and Robbie, I'm curious, like. What, you know, because I was just throwing out ideas and, and mentioning things like, but like for you going through an actual game with this, how did that feel? I was, I mean, I thought it was super interesting and, and helpful. I, I came into this uh, blind. I, I hadn't, I, I knew Jack had set this up, but uh, they also were very uh, mentioned that we shouldn't try to uh, read ahead. And so I, I purposely left myself ignorant on what the questions would be. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of good things here. I'm uh, unfortunately going to have to listen to myself talk and, and write notes when I listen to this podcast <laughs> in real time uh, about what to do. But um, yeah, I think this is this is a super helpful tool that I will uh, definitely reference in the future. I was hoping I would face plant. I also found the document and um, did not read it because it's more entertaining to like find out you've done something totally stupid. Um, I think that's a great attitude to have, you know, this is, I, I've, I've performed music in front of people and stuff and people are scared to do that, but like, you should go up like hoping that people like boo you because that's when things get interesting. (laughs) I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) In fact, thankfully that's never happened, but like, um, I don't know, at least the audience is engaged. So who knows? Wow. (laughs) I'm just saying like. No fear. I mean, come on. No one's going to hurt you with words. Don't be afraid to make your game. Test it with people. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. That is actually good advice. Despite your best efforts, you landed on some good advice there, Robbie. (laughs) A little bit of a roundabout way, but we got there. (laughs) Oh, we had to walk all the way to Mordor, but we did get there. So, um, hey, y'all, this was really fun. And, um, yeah, Jack, I appreciate you facilitating this uh for us so that we can kind of hear um about a tool and how it works and um yeah i I really enjoyed uh hearing everyone walk through this and it certainly made me think about a lot of different um a lot of different things uh surrounding this that i could be thinking about with games as well yeah i'll literally be after this pulling up the rules to finish them off uh, at least this uh draft them and, and uh yeah like i said uh well i didn't say here but um you know i will be submitting to cardboard and if only just to reach to like a a, a, a milestone in, in this mm-hmm. process so well, i'll be keeping an eye out for the 600 page rule thesis at some point soon <laughs> <laughs>
Excellent. That may be further Excellent. down the line, <laughs> or or possibly never. Uh, but yeah, it, it, so um, for for the listeners, uh, I do uh, writing and editing services for the tabletop industry. So if anybody's ever looking for help in that sphere, um, I'm available. The uh, game design self diagnostic is going to be available on my website. Uh, Jason will put uh, links to it in the doobly doo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Indeed, I will. The doobly doo is that's next to the beeble beeble blip. The you you, know, you, you access it by by giving some some beeble bop beeble bops. Oh. Yeah, three okay. three beeble bops to one dooby doo. Hey, I think you have the title of this podcast. <laughs> I think we do. I think we do. <laughs> um, awesome, awesome. Uh, does anybody else have want to throw out any contact info? Um, for uh, where people can find you, other than our lovely Discord, which all three of these awesome people are in our lovely Discord. I think I'm Robbie. Well, I am Robbie Bergstrom. I, I think I'm Robbie Bergstrom. Um, <laughs> I go by that name on Blue Sky. I, I don't log on there far enough. Um, and then if you search Kowloon Walled City Board Game on Facebook, you'll find the, the page for that. And yeah, that's that's it. Uh, I mean, I am cash at VT, C-A-S-H at VT, the letters on Twitter. Uh, if you want to see random things about the games that I play and uh, adventures that I'm on, but uh, and a little bit of game design stuff, I suppose. Um, and I guess I'm also on Blue Sky, although I need to do more there uh, as Polite Rogue. And it's not pronounced Cashola, but it definitely should be. It should be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm Jack Rosetree. I can be found in most places as Jack Rosetree, uh, and I'm most responsive on Discord. Oh, yeah. Come to the Discord. That's it. Yeah. I love – yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the best place to be anyway. If, if you had fun hanging out with us tonight, you would have fun in the Discord because it's like this over text. And then every Tuesday, it's actually like this uh, at the meetup. So, all right, y'all. Well, um, this was fun. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, y'all, of course, you can um, – Find us at buildingthegamepodcast.com. There you can find a link to that Discord we mentioned. Also, you can email us at buildingthegamepodcast at gmail.com. Um, and um, you can, of course, do the most important thing, which is keep coming back every single week. And until next time, good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. The end of the episode, that's when it technically ends.